1: Hi there. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Aaron Stephen Moore about his new book, Constructing East Asia, Technology, Ideology, and Empire in Japan's Wartime Era, 1931 to 1945. This came out with Stanford University Press in 2013. Now, this is an interview that's posted both on the East Asian Studies and the STS channels because it speaks really nicely to both of these fields. And it's a, really a model of the kind of transdisciplinary work that covers history of technology and science and history of East Asia and here Japan in a really wonderful way. What is the history of technology and what does it look like? In this book, Moore does a really interesting job here of expanding what we think of as the history of an idea, the history of a concept, and looking very specifically at the material, the cultural, the social, the colonial, um, the, the practical, the economic consequences of a discourse of, and not only of an emerging discourse of, but of really a transforming discourse of technology. Ideas of what technology is, what it could be, and how it could transform the lives of nations, of states, and of individual people in the context of Japan in the wartime era. It's a story that kind of also transcends typical modes of intellectual history. So a history of ideas, a history of concepts that locates it in the work of, or locates them rather, in the work of particular individuals and a history of materials, a history of cities, a history of projects that looks at the physical infrastructural Uh, projects and um, building structures, urban planning, dam structures that come out of these transformative ideas. It's a really rich book. We only barely scratched the surface in the course of our interview. So I highly recommend um, going to it and, and looking at it and inhabiting it as a kind of landscape, whether you are coming at it from an interest in history of technology or from an interest in Japan, because it speaks very nicely to both. It was a pleasure to read the book and to talk with Aaron about it, and I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Aaron Stephen Moore about his new book, Constructing East Asia, Technology, Ideology, and Empire in Japan's Wartime Era, 1931-1945. to Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Aaron, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today.
0: Uh, Thank you very much for having me today.
1: Great. So can you start off as is traditional for um, both of these channels, actually, just by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to the history of technology in modern Japan?
0: Uh, Yes, well, I'm a Cornell uh, history PhD. Um, I received my PhD in 2006. Um, My dissertation was primarily in intellectual history dissertation, uh, I was looking at um, how technology or the term technology in Japanese, gijutsu, was defined by uh, different elites, different groups uh, within Japan. Uh, what brought me to that issue of technology was um, I was really interested in the wartime period, uh, specifically in ideologies of pan Asianism, uh, which back then and still maybe a little bit today wasn't really uh, taken seriously as an ideology, as a as a as, an, as a compelling ideology or system of trying to mobilize and organize the colony. It was mostly seen as uh, mostly ideological fluff. Which I mean, yes, a lot is, but a lot of, you know it wasn't taken seriously as uh, something that really motivated Japanese elites and also uh, colonial uh, sub-elites as well. So um, Pan-Asianism was a very, at least the most studies that I read back then were mostly focused on the cultural aspects of Pan-Asianism, so unifying the different ethnicities and races of uh, the Japanese empire. Um, and there you know, there didn't seem to be, um, it seemed to be a very, I guess, abstract discourse in my mind. And then through a lot of reading, I noticed that uh, science and technology uh, was a key aspect of Pan-Asianism. In other words, it's not just a kind of cultural concept of appealing to a common Asianist. It was also – it had this very uh, specific, very particular modernizing aspect to it that Pan-Asianism also consisted of um, building – Uh, modernist cities, um, the heavy industrial development, as opposed to uh, what they, what they represented Western colonialism as the exploitation of resources and labor. Uh, um, You know, in other words, uh, the Japanese would introduce heavy industrialization as opposed to the, the Western uh, imperialism, which is based on pure exploitation. Again, this is the discourse back then. So uh, I seized on this concept of technology um, and found that this is a compelling way. I get this is a way in which elites really framed uh, the whole colonial endeavor in terms of uh, modernization of the colonies through like dams, through river planning projects, through um, uh, building cities, uh, these big modernist cities and things like that. So that's how I got to their project. Um, and On technology and how different elites, I mean, at the dissertation stage, again, it mostly focused on intellectuals and how uh, they defined it. But after the dissertation, I really focused on specific projects uh, of technologies so that, you know, I don't put forth an image of that technology uh, is this it's just an intellectual concept that was also forged in different notions of technology were also forged on the ground, uh, through specific projects. So, yeah.
1: Great. Thank you. So I have a a super quick question. Why Japan Mm -hmm. in the first place? What brought you to Japan as the locus that you wanted to focus on as a, as part of your advanced education?
0: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, I've lived, uh, in Japan, uh, since I was a kid, my dad was, uh, in the foreign service, um, I've also worked in various capacities in Japan. I was part of the uh, jet program uh, for two years in rural Japan. I was a translator at a Japanese law firm. So, um, just from a young age, I was—I've um, been involved w- with Japan. So, I guess I've lived there for a total of um, twelve years or so. Um, so, I mean, that's one way I got into. Uh, Japan, because it was so much a part of my life. In terms of the academic study of Japan, um, I, think I I mean I was interested in an in undergraduate. At the, during my undergraduate times, um, I was, uh, you know, I wanted to go to grad school, and um, this was the time when Japan the bubble period mm-hmm. um, in in the study in in Japanese, when Japan, you know, books like Japan is number one, Uh, Japan is taking over America economically, that they're, uh, you know, they represented a a kind of particular model that everyone should study. Um, This this idea of Japanese particularity was really um, gaining traction. And um, based on my experiences, I mean, it was something I was very critical of. Um, And so, hence, uh, I mean, that's one motivation there. Uh, for me going into grad school, especially intellectual history, uh, which um, in, in grad school I was especially interested in um, philosophy, right? Japanese philosophy. And, you know, if you're looking at Japanese philosophy, you know, it's very, very much tied up to uh, Europe, right? Um, especially the Kyoto School of Philosophy, very much tied up to um, European philosophy. And that's one way in which um, Japan is not really. Particularized, right? It's not really just seen as something unique and all that, but very. I'm very. I was very much interested in tying Japan um, to the rest of the world. Um, culturally, intellectually, uh, and all that, rather than just um, exoticizing Japan as particular, as uh, unique, and all that. I mean, that was the kind of, I guess, historical context I was coming out of and trying to critique. And so that that ties in, thus, I guess, a little bit to my focus on technology, because technology is another thing which you can't really particularize as unique to one culture. It was very global. Uh, So it's one way of tying Japan to global trends of uh, modernization, development, development, and things like that. So that that really, um, that, I guess, the historical moment when I went to grad school um, of exoticizing Japan, um, I'm seeing Japan as particular uh, in some in a kind of indirect fashion, motivated me to uh, focus on a topic that would not exoticize Japan too much by focusing on its relationship to uh, technology uh, and things like that. So.
1: Great. Thank you so much. It's, right. it's, um There's a really interesting set of really deep roots it's uh-huh. for the project, which is really fascinating for me, at least to hear about. Okay. So you've talked a little bit about um, the kinds of things that were changed from this project when you moved from the stage of a dissertation to the stage of a book. And so you've already talked about your shift from focusing strictly on intellectuals to focusing more on, or at least to adding a dimension to this story mm-hmm. that looks specifically at projects and, and the okay. aspect of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Were
1: there any other aspects of the transition from dissertation to book for you that stand out in your mind as being notable or surprising or important, um, or were there any important markers along the way in the process that um, shaped the way you thought about the project and transformed it in any important way?
0: Um, Yeah, two things, I guess, that are really, two more things that are different in addition to the focus on actual uh, large-scale infrastructure projects. One thing I, I did also was to um, position Japanese bureaucrats, intellectuals, and engineers uh, into more global uh, exchanges of ideas and uh, ideas, global, global flows of ideas. So, so, for example, if I talk about fascism, I would relate, um, you know, if, Notions of fascism within Japan, to, especially with really in relation to technology, uh, with notions in Germany, uh, for example, or looking at um, um, notions of technology uh, within Japan and comparing them to the Soviet Union or the United States, right? Because Japanese thinkers were actively reading the same literature as European thinkers. So trying to bring that uh, transnational flow of ideas into the project um, much more. I'm doing much more of that kind of work in in the book. Uh, Secondly, um, I, you know, I mean, I tried to put more, um, put more, uh, details about policy, right? So, not just ideas, but how ideas translated into policy. So, what types of policies? So, policies of wartime mobilization, policies of colonial rule, of uh, specifically national land planning, um, or in Japanese, kokudo kaku, which uh, really took off uh, after the war. So, you know, it's expanding um, both. Uh, in a transnational direction, and also from ideas to policy, and in addition to what I mentioned earlier, um, looking at much more at the colonial context and um, infrastructure projects there.
1: Yeah, and this um, aspect of the book that looks at the colonial context is super, super fascinating, and we're definitely going to talk, um, I think, at length about that later on in the book. It's just one of the really exciting parts of the project for me, so we're definitely going to get there. Okay. Okay, so let's actually move into the book then. Um, as we open up the book and as we encounter the introduction, you open the introduction by considering the history of the notion of Japan as a techno-superpower and introducing mm-hmm. like the prevalent paradigm of Japan's modernization narrative. And mm-hmm. what the book is going to do is it's going to proceed to critique this conventional narrative of post-war technological modernization in Japan, and it does so, um, and I'll just sort of lay this out for listeners as a way of schematizing the book before we dive into the details. It does okay. so um, in a few ways. It does so in part by tracing the origins of this narrative, and what you call a technological imaginary of wartime Japan. Mm-hmm looking at the ways that different groups and specifically intellectuals, technological bureaucrats, engineers, and state planners invested this term technology and the the Japanese rather equivalent of this term with ideological meaning and power in the course of their major roles in shaping wartime discourse, national policy, and getting involved in, as you um, talk about later on in the book, and as you've already mentioned, large-scale infrastructure projects. Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, it also considers the physical projects and the products that emerged from this technological imaginary as an intellectual construct, right? And this includes um, urban and regional planning, river basin control, and dam construction projects. Mm -hmm. Finally, um, I this is, I just want to lay this out as one of the major um, contributions of the book. It really expands the conventional narrative. That's a focused on a domestic story about technology in terms of capitalist development and wartime mobilization to consider really carefully and closely and consider as really primary the relationship to colonial development and rule. And that's a really important, I think, part of this project that also um, situates it in very important global stories about imperialism and colonialism in, in a really refreshing way. (laughs) <laughs> so um, so with that in mind, um, one of the things that the book does repeat, repeatedly in a, in a really helpful way, and I imagine that this is part of its um, genesis and in, in its emb- embryonic form as in part infused by an interest in um, intellectual history or the history of ideas – You introduce us throughout the book to some really crucial uh, terminology and sort of ideological concepts that infused discourse and also translated into very practical projects. And Mm -hmm. so that starts right at the beginning. And so I'm going to start by asking you to talk about one of them. You note early on in the book, in the introduction, that the emergence of a discourse on technology by Japanese elites was a project, a process of imagineering. Okay. So um, can you start us off by talking a little bit about that? What um, What is this idea of Imagineering here? And in what ways is it central to the kind of work that you're trying to do in the book and specifically in this part of the book?
0: Uh, yes. Um, so I guess, I mean, one way in which or a predominant way in which technology is understood is as – Artifacts as a material artifacts, physical technology, um, you know, just the, the stuff of like industrial machines, uh, smokestacks, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and that's also very much tied to, um, like what you mentioned at the beginning, the notion of um, the, the modernizing notion of technology, that it's Japan's uh, innovative uh, introduction of and introduction and invention of uh, innovative technology uh, physical technology that's led to its uh, rise as a technological superpower so um, I'm very much interested in expanding the notion of technology I mean it's not just me this was going on uh, in the early 20th early 20th century uh, all around the world when technology uh, was becoming much more than individual artifacts, but through the expansion of, I guess, industrial systems, transportation systems, like power systems, uh, mass media and all that technology became, uh, much less of a, the, uh, much less, uh, artifactually defined, materially defined and a widespread discussion of technology. Um, uh, the immaterial meanings of technology uh, began to occur throughout in the Europe and the United States uh, and Japan. So um, what does it mean to, uh, I mean, how do we integrate technology into our everyday lives? So technology um, began to have much more immaterial meanings as, for example, production, uh, creation, uh imagining something new, right? So in other words, um, it's not just a matter of introducing machinery and artifacts, right? It's also tied to uh, conversations about how you env- envision your urban environment, how you envision uh, your future economy, uh, how you envision your your everyday life. Um, so it, technology, it, be, it, be, it became less of a matter of separating yourself from technology, but uh, tying conversations about technology to certain uh I guess, certain comportments, right, certain ways of of behavior, uh, certain values, for example. So technology being tied into values of rationalization, um, of uh, production, efficiency. Um, In other words, um, looking at the definition of technology uh, as more than physical artifacts, but looking at how it's tied to Uh, ways of acting and also uh, different values and of course then this ties into a conversation of of how you organize your society uh how you organize the empire uh how you organize uh, the economy and things like that so more i guess uh interesting conversations to me on how um the relationship between technology uh and power um so i mean that's the introduction i guess of the book, which I, I mean, I start the book very much uh, trying to conceptualize technology um, like that. Mm-hmm.
1: Great, thank you. Now, one of the, the, the book lays out um, many of the sort of basic principles that we've been talking about, and we'll get into them in more detail mm-hmm. in chapters. And so I won't um, talk too much more about them now. It also lays out some of the conceptual foundations of the way mm-hmm. you're doing these topics. And so you talk about the importance of the ideas of the Frankfurt School, you talk about mm-hmm. ideas of Marcuse and Habermas. But interestingly, um, and I, since you do put this right at the beginning of the book and the conclusion of the introduction, I think it's you know, it's appropriate for us to talk about in, this in the beginning or the conclusion of the beginning of our conversation about mm-hmm. the book now. you The introduction ends in a really powerful way, um, and I I'm, I'm sort of want to ask you a little bit about your decision to put this right at the beginning. Okay. It, it ends in a really powerful way by considering some of the implications of how the wartime Japanese state used this technological imaginary that you've you know, spend the introduction talking about Mm-hmm. Rationalize a domestic and a colonial fascism, I and mean, you talk about um, in some detail, briefly, some of the consequences of this: human experimentation by Unit Seven Thirty One,
0: mm-hmm.
1: forced labor, and we'll we'll talk about this um, in the course of uh, one of the later chapters. But forced labor that, according to a quotation by one of your actors, transformed quote. Uh, coolies, unquote, into machinic extensions of the Japanese Imperial Army, non-human automatons, absolutely obedient. And mm-hmm. I make this quotation out here because it's so powerful. Um, mm-hmm. y- you talk about plying the Chinese with drugs like opium, and you talk about treating um, or conceptualizing comfort women as quote sanitary public toilets. So these aren't uh, these aren't your um, mm-hmm. depictions of them, right? These are the historical yes. depictions of them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. Can you, because it, that's such a powerful way to bring us into the story at the end of the introduction, and it's um, it, it really changes, I think, the way we read the rest of the book, can you talk a little bit about your decision to end the introduction that way? Why put that there, and how did you want that to shape the reader's experience of the story to come? If
0: um, yeah, well, I guess the, the conventional discussion around Japanese uh, imperialism um, is very... I guess it's very simplistic, and it's one of the things that I, I really want to challenge. That um, Japanese politicians, especially in the right wing, uh, always say, "Well, you know, we we modernized the colonies, right? We built roads and dams and and train systems and all that." Uh, the reaction, typical reaction, of course, is, "Well, look at the uh, all of the the war crimes, like, like you mentioned." Um, there that the Japanese committed, that this stuff, this was just kind of fluffy that it really didn't modernize. So what I'm I guess doing in the book is uh, questioning no- notions of modernization uh, through um, technology. right? So that is not you know modernization is not a progressive narrative of just development and prosperity. Modernization is a form of power. Uh, and mobilization specifically technology uh, is a form of mobilizing uh, people 's hopes and desires uh, uh, as a form of of of, of colonial and, and domestic rule um, so let me see so yeah I mean that 's one thing is just criticizing the whole that, that kind of dichotomy that 's in the uh, conventional debate about um, Uh, colonialism and specifically with that section that you put there um, one thing that I guess I I, I kind of just wanted to put I kind of wanted to put them together one kind of outcome of this I guess call to mobilize people through technology right through the building of large infrastructure projects through organizing people into uh, occupational units or by vocation uh, through trying to encourage um, productivity and efficiency in all aspects of life was a kind of, um, you know, call to kind of just sacrifice yourself for this type of, uh, you know, modernist vision, right. This kind of technological vision that um, one product of this is that and it's speculating that, you know, that, that so far did this kind of logic of, of, mobile association through technology go that this things like unit 731 uh you know drug, drugging drugging the labor force um the things that you mentioned mentioned in the beginning uh is a kind of you know rationality ra- rationalism uh, gone like to the extreme like that's like the end product uh, of a lot of um of Japanese imperialism. At the same time, you know, I mean, you, we can conclude that, well, you know, in the end, this is the real result of uh, Japanese imperialism, this kind of dystopia. But what I want to be arguing, I want to argue also is that, you know, these modernist imperatives of organizing the economy uh, through technology, of mobilizing people through the trope of technology, of um, continue on uh, into the post-war, that they aren't, you know, just uh, dropped right then, that they become prime Um, pillars of japan's post-war rapid economic development that have become prime pillars of japan's overseas development policy right so whereas um people might focus at least in the wartime on of course japan's uh, necessarily focus on japan's war crimes um and documenting them um they often see all that as a result of Irrational factors like the supreme, the racist factors of like Japanese uh, racial superiority, spiritualist notions of the Japanese race, uh, focusing on that as a result of war crimes. But there's also, I think it's necessary to tie war crimes to um, notions of technological modernization and colonial rule operating at the time. Um, and I, that's why I specify things like Unit 731 um, and forced labor and the so-called comfort women's system, um, as spe- also tied to, um, invocations of technology rather than just outcomes of a certain irrationalist aesthetic that most people see as characterizing, uh, wartime Japan. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess it's addressing a, con- a um, a contemporary conversation around Japanese imperialism.
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, So as we get into the chapters, you use these chapters to introduce some really interesting case studies and very specific um, particular individuals who form the backbone of this story and through an interpretation of whose uh, products and writings and ideas we come to understand the emergence of this idea of a technological imaginary. And it's, um, as you were just talking about, um, in in one way, um, some of its material and social and cultural implications. So chapter one looks at the development of theories about technology and society by leftist intellectuals from the early 1930s. Mm
0: -hmm. It
1: it focuses on the work of one such um, intellectual, a Marxist intellectual named Aikawa Haruki, Mm -hmm. who's a prominent theorist of technology who describes a notion of a technologized system of society where all aspects of people's lives are mobilized for radical social transformation. He's a super fascinating guy who's interested in you know, film. He's interested in factories. He's interested in all kinds of really fascinating case studies that you de- describe here. So let's start with him. Um, for listeners who you know don't know anything about this history, can you um, tell us a little bit about him? Who is he and what aspects of the kind of Ideas that he's putting forth in his materials are specifically um, or particularly central to the kinds of arguments that you're developing about Marxist um, or leftist, rather, intellectuals in this part of the book.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, the reason I I started with this chapter on uh, Marxist intellect was that um, I wanted to lay the theoretical foundations uh, to how I'm using the term technology. So um, he was probably the most prolific. Um, writer or theorist about technology. Um, like you said, he was not just interested in, uh, industrial or economic technology, but also interested in issues about technology and colonial development, uh, even interested in issues of, of mass media and how that changes, um, people's subjectivities, identities, and, um, consciousness. So he was interested in all aspects of how technology, um, shaped, uh, modern life. Um, at first, time, I mean, Mar- Japanese Marxists, uh, the wartime, I mean, the Japanese Marxists were very, uh, marginal figures, uh, during the wartime. But having said that, I mean, in, in the Japanese context, Marxism from the 1920s, uh, really shaped the Japanese, uh, social sciences in the wider, uh, intellectual world. I mean, Marxism, was a framework by which uh, bureaucrats and intellectuals approached social problems. So um, it's not necessarily the ideology of Marxism, but it's, I guess, the techniques, the methods of Marxism that really influenced a lot of non-Marxists, even bureaucrats as well, uh, who went on to run the Japanese uh, wartime economy, were skilled, were were, um, educated in uh, Marxist methodology. So Marxists in the Japanese case aren't necessarily marginal figures. Uh, People we're reading their stuff uh, in terms of, in the in the wider social science and intellectual world. Um, why, um, Ikewa, um Again, I just um, he introduces uh, the basic dynamic that I want to get at. This dynamic of, like you said in the beginning, imagineering or uh, the technological imaginary um, as a society that's um, where all areas of life are mobilized. Um, through this trope of technology. So I guess the key moment in this chapter would be the graph, uh, that I, uh, pre- reproduce, uh, in there, which describes the various life processes, uh, of, he describes all areas of life as having their own technology. So organizing all our, there's, there's, uh, economic technologies that organize uh, labor and production and distribution. There's political technologies that organize policing and legislation, uh, and, um, even, you know, hygiene and health campaigns. There's cultural technologies which, uh, mobilize, I guess, um, uh, you know, the ideas, thought, art, and things like that. In other words, he reproduces a notion of technology as, um, organizing all areas of life, but organized in a way in which people are really invested, uh, in, uh, society, right? Technology as, uh, as, as, uh, introducing technology that's really, I guess, infused in life, but technology was representing, uh, creativity, uh, production, uh, a, a world where people can realize their individuality and their skills and, um, Uh, really develop themselves. And what he's inspired by, of course, is images uh, from the Soviet Union, socialist construction, uh, which are criticizing capitalist notions of technology, which uh, are, I guess, how would you put it? You would are, are creating alienation, dehumanization, all that. But on, in a socialist world, um, technology would be brought closer to life to, uh, through, uh, labor, right. Laborers would not just be, uh, industrial laborers, but they would learn technical skills. They would become managers. Uh, they would gain, uh, a, a broader education and all that they would take in, You know, technology would be very much infused as part of their life. Um, which is inspiring his, Development of these of of this notion of the technological process of everyday life. Um, as I also mentioned in the book, he's you know he's a Marxist, but like many Marxists during the wartime era, they converted uh, to the wartime cause because Marxists were, of course, being rounded up, arrested, and thrown in jail. Uh, in in Japan studies. I mean, there's a huge debate about, you know, why did these Marxists, um, you know, join the wartime cause? Maybe this was just a surface type of conversion. Um, I argue that, no, I mean, he's, um, I guess, he really buys into this whole uh, system of technology as a way to mobilize people in the hopes that this is just a stage on the path towards uh, Eventual socialism that through the mobilization of all of Japan uh, through technology, this would modernize Japan but not only modernize Japan but modernize the colonies as well, they would thus advance on to the next stage of correcting all the feudal remnants and then putting Japan on the I guess trajectory towards uh, socialism um, so that's a way in which I, I kind of interpret him in that way um, again, Um, I mean, yes, he's a a Marxist and not not necessarily, you might say, he's not necessarily that important. During the war, he's also, again, as an intellectual, he's also very much part of a lot of technology associations, a lot of think tanks. So he's part of the social scientific discourse, which, you know, while Marxism is being repressed, a lot of the ideas are are being manifested through uh, a lot of the think tanks, through a lot of the social science literature uh, indirectly. So he's shaping... I guess a lot of the what I call the technological imaginary of the intellectual world and um, the policy world as well through his writing. So I mean, the purpose of this chapter, I guess, is to um, introduce different notions of uh, technology and uh, creativity um, throughout. So, for example, so in. Uh, technology and production technology and rationality uh, in different aspects of the economy and his various ideas, which I can talk about I guess uh, later or I think I've
1: Yep. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think we could talk about um, and, I, and I'll just put this out there for listeners we could talk about any of these individual chapters okay. easily for like two hours apiece okay. and, and that's, and that's a, a compliment I mean there's so much really rich material, material in here um, but let's move from the um, intellectuals represented by him to another group of people actually okay. that you um, talk about in the second chapter so while leftist intellectuals really um, emblematized by Uh, Aikawa Haruki that you just were speaking about, and that we could talk about at much more Mm -hmm. length, right? Well, they had emphasized the power of technology to infuse life with creativity, as you just um, mentioned, Mm -hmm. with revolutionary transformation. At the same time, a group that you um, call technological bureaucrats instead adopt a way of thinking about technology that's very different, that's in terms of a more technocratic notion of technology as comprehensive social planning. And Chapter 2 to look specifically at the discourse on technology amongst state engineers who become a powerful force in the 1930s. So we turn, um, in turning from chapter one to chapter two, we turn from these leftist intellectuals to looking specifically at engineers as a group. And it's a really fascinating chapter. So can you start us out um, in our exploration or our um, minimal, right, exploration of this ch- chapter of some of the interesting moments of this chapter? By talking about the idea of comprehensive technology, okay. this emerges as being really important here. So what is that and how does that um, wind up taking on an important or pivotal role in what's going on in this chapter of the book?
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, so so while the first chapter really kind of lays out the, the association between technology and social transformation and revolutionary transformation, just bringing out those aspects of technology. Um, I guess those, I guess, imagineering aspects of technology and and revolutionary change. This chapter focuses on a different group of what I call technology bureaucrats or engineers. Uh, most bureaucrats in Japan had law degrees, but, uh, you know, you have a growing amount of technical skills required, uh, and thus the hiring of engineers, uh, especially in the uh, home ministry, uh, for the construction of the infrastructure, uh, and all of that. Um, so, in this chapter, I focus mostly on, you might call them as more technocratic notions of technology. Technology as um, involving, uh, you know, engineers not just as building specific things, right? Not just en- engineers as instrumental uh, people to be used to build roads and things like that, but as en- building roads uh, and dams and, and um, transportation and power systems uh, that involve skills of social planning, uh, and social organization, which thus leads me to, uh, the concept of comprehensive, uh, technology. Um, this concept is not nothing unique to Japan. Uh, this is being developed concurrently as, um, in, uh, the U S with the Tennessee Valley authority in the Soviet union through the five-year plans. What this is, is, um, the, not is, Instead of just planning individual projects, like you know, building a road here, or building, uh, planning a river uh, for flood flood control project here, uh, planning a dam there, is what this is. Is the it's the coordination of various uh, technologies to bring mutual benefits. Uh, or I guess I guess mutually sustaining benefits uh, to each other. So for example, the the most common example would be the building of a multi-purpose dam uh, which would not only produce electricity for uh, heavy ind- for heavy industry, but the dam would also contribute to flood control, uh, local irrigation efforts, transportation improvement, um, and things like that. so so rationally planning projects, that contribute to multiple purposes um, in the most efficient fashion rather than um, having engineers work on individual projects and being specialized in one. So you you require, therefore, a new type of engineer who is not just a dam engineer or an electric engineer, uh, things like that, but who has to have a vision of uh, a developing economy, of, of projects that are related to each other that contribute to, development and prosperity. Um, And so the growth of, I guess, an idea of engineer as what he calls uh, these engineers in this chapter described as an administrative engineer um, that sees engineering as more than just instrumental making, but has a vision of uh, society, of the economy, uh, of the colonies in this case, right? So that's another angle in which I discuss comprehensive technology is not just developed uh, in the minds of these engineers, but very much developed um on the ground. Um, because one place in which these technology bureaucrats uh really went to escape the dominance of law bureaucrats uh was the colonies, because there was less red tape. And this is where they really developed uh their notions of what uh what I call described as comprehensive technology. Um And this leads me into the next two chapters, right? And so this is where they really got their hands dirty, in other words, and and really uh, developed different notions of comprehensiveness. And I just talked about one that's centered around dam construction, but there's also different notions centered around river planning or um, building cities or building industrial zones. So it's in the colonies where they really, I guess, flesh out what this means, right? Um, Whereas in chapter two, I guess I'm introducing more of the contours of Uh, how this is becoming institutionalized uh, in the Japanese government and also overseas. Great.
1: Thank you so much. So as you um, mentioned, there's uh, this colonial context, and specifically in Chapter 2 you mentioned um, the Manchurian incident specifically as something that was a kind of watershed moment for these engineers. Mm -hmm. And the idea of Manchuria as a kind of new world, as you put it, for engineers Mm -hmm. really... Um, start shaping the ways that engineers are thinking about themselves as well, or sort of self-identifying and thinking about their own roles of the story in the story.
0: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. under
1: the rubric, um, so the title of the book is Constructing East Asia. Um, mm-hmm. Here's where that rubric actually comes out, and, and we um, we learn about what that means in the centrality of that for the story. So under mm-hmm. the rubric of Constructing East Asia, um, or sort of technologies for constructing Asia, many thousands of engineers actually travel to Korea, Taiwan, Manchukuo, and China, primarily in the 1930s, to, as you mentioned, build roads, canals, ports, dams, cities, irrigation systems, sewage, and waterworks, electrical networks, communications networks, all kinds of stuff. And the and the colonies really become a place where a lot of this is worked out. And this us into, as you said, the next two chapters of the book, which are completely fascinating um, case studies or, or explorations of case studies that look specifically at the ways that civil engineers and urban planners constructing infrastructure projects in a colonial context, really open up and sort of transform this technological imaginary and its um, material and social and cultural and colonial implications. Okay, so let's look directly at some of these projects. The, The third chapter focuses on three main case studies and I'll just sort of very briefly name them for listeners who might be interested Mm -hmm. in them individually. There's the Liao River Improvement Project in South Manchuria. There's um, a project of urban planning in Beijing. And there's uh, the Dadong Port Coastal Industrial Zone Project along the Yalu River, which is interesting in terms of its geographical situation because it's on the border between Manchuria and Korea in this period. Mm -hmm. So can you Take on any one of those three projects that you are most excited to talk about and talk a little bit about um, how that particular project and the material conditions of that project open up what's happening in terms of your argument in this part of the book?
0: Um, yeah, okay. So I guess I mean the key the goals of these two ch- of this, these two chapters is to just get away from the notion that The, this, these utopian notions of technology or that technocratic planning is, uh, a very coherent and neat process that it's, it's first developed in the minds of engineers and bureaucrats and then brought to the colonies, uh, which is this passive space for them to then experiment. In other words, kind of, uh, getting away from this, I mean, seeing the colonies as just this kind of passive laboratory, uh, for which uh, technocrats can kind of heroically uh, implement their grand conceptions. Um, so I try this more, I guess you might call it um, grassroots or bottom up type of analysis by looking at um, how they're developing these notions, which they may they might've had vague notions, uh, but uh, how they're developing their notions of like comprehensive river planning uh, on the ground. So, uh, the Liao River project is one thing. I, is the is the project I start off chapter three with. Um, one of the first things that after the establishment of Manchukuo that uh, colonial planners faced, was, or that the Kwantung Army faced, was the prevalence of floods, uh, massive floods uh, that, of course, would wreck all plans for any type of agricultural or industrial development that uh manchu planners had so i mean this is one immediate problem that they had to address and the the owl, the owl river region is of course like the bread of manchuria it's where most of the population also lived um it was the arteries through which a lot of the soya trade uh was also um carried out so um Japanese engineers saw this as a chance, um, you know, they couldn't do a lot of this in Japan as well because of the vast sectionalism, sectionalism between different ministries. Um, so like you said, a lot of them flocked to the colonies, uh, to, uh, pursue, uh, these dreams of, you know, these grand projects, uh, that, uh grand projects of like river planning and, uh, dam construction and all that. So specifically the Lao River project, what this was, was to, they, they, they implement, they tried to introduce ideas of, um, uh, correcting the flood control through in, through building, uh, for example, reservoirs uh, upstream that would uh, trap the water. Uh, and thus lessen the, the burden or lessen the floodwaters downriver. Use these these waters for, I guess, power production, water supply, uh, and irrigation. Uh, build uh, conduits, for example, to alleviate pressures at tributary points. Uh, build, of course, uh, typical, you know, da- uh, build dikes and levees and wares and all that. So um, instead of just reacting, I guess, to floods, uh, as they come and just being in the mode of disaster uh, control and alleviating disasters. This is an idea of comprehensively planning the region to uh, not only address flood control, but you know, like I said earlier, also contribute to further economic development in the form of introducing uh, irrigation to allow settlers to flow in uh, and also power to introduce, uh, to expand cities and also introduce industrial development. Um, so that's the, that's what they're doing. Of course, they encounter lots of problems. So this is the main story that I really want to get at. It's not just them uh, going there and implementing their conceptions, but when they do is they, they know nothing about uh, the environment, for example. Floods are on a way different scale uh, than they are in Japan. Uh, they have to use, um, for example, data that was previously collected by uh, the Russians or by warlords. Um, they also mobilize the knowledge of local Chinese resource committees. Um, so I mean, one thing I wanted to really introduce is just the amount, the amount that they didn't know, how their conception, they really didn't really have a conception of the environment that they were working with, that it was on a vast different scale and really challenged a lot of the confidence or a lot of the discourse of Japan is coming to Asia to modernize through technology, that a lot of this was formed through difficult negotiations with the environment, but not just difficult negotiations with the environment in the, in the implementation of this project, um, which was, um, not completed fully, but various parts of it uh, were completed. Uh, there was various struggles between, for example, uh, engineers who wanted to conduct very uh, comprehensive studies uh to gain data so that they can uh, better plan better projects and not make mistakes versus local bureaucrats who wanted to get started right away with these projects in order to win the hearts of the local population and to create a kind of allegiance to the new Manchukuo state you had conflicts between the military who wanted to uh coordinate river planning with or for like dike construction with uh or river planning with road construction to facilitate transportation needs uh you had uh settler Companies uh, asserting their interests. You had railroad companies asserting their interests. So I wanted to bring out that negotiation process and how that shaped uh, this comprehensive river planning project, and how it it, um, shaped engineering notions of of comprehensive planning. So, in other words, it's you know, comprehensive. These these utopian notions of technology aren't static, right? They're constantly being developed in relation to uh, to different interests uh, and the environment. Uh, is what I wanted to do with um, this chapter. And I tried to do that too with, um, for example, um, looking at the urban planning in Beijing and also, uh, in particular, industrial zone planning uh, on the border between Manchukuo uh, and Korea, which is important uh, in my case in that Japanese development in the post-war is very much developed on these based on these development of these coastal industrial zones and this kind of national land planning on coastal industrial zones. And this was like a, for uh, one of the first examples of that uh, in building this coastal industrial zone on the Manchukuo side of the Yalu River. So looking at these, the building of these notions, but looking at the messy process by which these notions uh, developed. Yeah.
1: Great. Thank you so much. And these kinds of concerns and this kind of analysis Mm persist in the next chapter. As you've Mm -hmm. um, already mentioned, these two chapters form kind of a a, a really nice pair. This chapter focuses on the most prominent examples of Japanese colonial infrastructure, um, Mm -hmm. which are namely the construction of two of the world's largest dams. So you talk about the Fengman Dam and the Supong Dam. Mm -hmm. Um, So I won't go into too much detail about this because a lot of the phenomena here are really interesting in terms of the particularity of these cases, but also sort of um, re-emphasize and sort of re-strengthen the kinds of points that you were making in the previous chapter. Um, You talk here, some of the really interesting points that come up in this chapter that I'll just mention for listeners so that they know and they can go look for them. Um, You mention, or you talk about dam construction as a way of rationalizing rivers, which I think is wonderful. Um, One of the uh, supervisors of one of the dam projects, the process of constructing and managing or constructing dams And managing rivers is a sumo match with nature, which is another one of these great, great um, quotations that you're pulling out and and offering us as sort of gifts all over the book. I just love this aspect of the book. And you argue here also, and this just emphasizes a point that you're making in the previous chapter as well. So it's really um, strongly (coughs) reemphasized that overlapping forms of power, political, legal, scientific police power, which is really interesting here, military power in the colonies actually made this discourse of modernizing East Asia through Japanese technology possible. So it's a really interesting discussion that's happening in this chapter, focusing on the examples of these dams. Now, what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about, because this is another, it seems to me, really important part of what you're doing in this chapter in particular is that you talk here about the ways that these colonial projects actually impacted local colonial subjects. This okay. is a really important part of the work that this does, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I focus on dam construction projects, uh, these two dam construction projects, uh, largely because these actually were uh, largely these were largely completed. Um, but the dynamics I really want to focus on here are, uh, just to emphasize the point that, uh, the technological imaginary, uh, or the conceptions of these various engineers and bureaucrats are based on very specific, uh, power relationships. And this is where I get at, um, um, your question of, I guess, how this is affecting colonial, uh, subjects. Um, they are, they're affecting colonial subjects in multiple ways. Um, building of dams require, uh, the vast mobilization of labor, right? So they're, um, they're tapping into, uh, into, Systems of uh, forced labor and also Chinese labor brokers uh, throughout um, uh, throughout China. They're also tying into systems of mobilizing uh, Korean labor uh, for the South to participate in industrial projects in the North. Um, they're also using labor uh, that is uh, that is garnered from uh, local uh, counterinsurgency campaigns where they heard. Um, the villagers into strategic hamlets. Um, so one point I guess I'm trying to say is that it's not just the construction of a dam. Dam is construction is tied to uh, the general dynamics of colonial rule, which in this case is labor mobilization uh, and uh, counterinsurgency campaigns. Um, that it's not you know it's, it's not just if you just look at the story from the engineer's point of view. It's not just the implementation of the project. It involves um, things like mobilizing uh, labor. And um, uh, military campaigns, and also settlers settlement too. And this is another dynamic that's involved in the construction dams. How do you re- relocate the local population? Um, they did this by tying them to um, building settlements throughout Manchuria as a way to expand uh, Japanese power. So, um, you know, promising poor farmers more land, uh, better fields, uh, I guess a better life. Uh, um, in the process of trying to sell the dam to the residents, um, it isn't also just a, a case of only using, uh, you know, I guess, police power, or uh, as well. I also wanted to talk a little bit or try to introduce dynamics of, for example, you know, like I just said, uh, showing the promises uh, of the dam for uh, local development. Uh, as well, industrial development, a new future. I want to emphasize those uh, discursive uh, aspects as well, and to try to get a little bit too at, at how they're trying to mobilize labor too, by, for example, um, creating competitions or certain incentive schemes uh, among laborers and to try to mobilize them to build faster and things like that. Um, this go uh, this coincides also with the actual very brutal treatment uh, of labor um, as well uh, through the use of forced labor through the you know inhumane conditions where laborers were working at night uh, with very little uh, you know in, in frigid temperatures often given uh, systematically given morphine tablets to be able to work um, so I mean that, that's another angle which I wanted to talk about I'm not not only the the utter exploitation of labor in the building of these projects, but, you know, ways of trying to mobilize and sell the vision of constructing East Asia um, through, um, you know, uh, building, I guess, not, not just dams, but dams to, for power, but also dams for uh, local irrigation, transportation improvement, tourism is another thing that they tried to sell, um, um, and things like that. So, um so I'm trying to think if I addressed each aspect of your question, effects on on, colonial, on the colonial population. Um, yeah, and also the effect on the business community too would be uh, another uh, aspect in which dams uh, um, uh, tied into dynamics in the colonies. It wasn't just Japanese businesses, but for example, the lumber industry was very affected by uh The construction of dams. So this included not just Japanese operators, but uh, Chinese and Korean operators too. And I wanted to introduce an instance in which uh, they tried to shape the discourse of development, right? Uh, And by saying that dams should also consider the lumber industry, that lumber industry is also part of um, constructing Asia, right? In other words. Constructing Asia should also take into consideration the, the needs of the local people, uh, the needs of, uh, industries like the lumber industry, trying to, in other words, insert colonial subjectivity into the whole discourse of colonial development. I'm trying to show, I guess I'm trying to show that it's not just a case of t- bureaucrats trying to shape a technological imaginary, uh, interests like, interests like the lumber industry or, Residents, too, right? Residents said, well, you have to take our considerations into that and as part of uh, invoking a, a technological modernization discourse. Now, in other words, I try to introduce ways by which the colonized try to alter uh, the discourse of constructing East Asia uh, to insert their interest uh, as a form I guess you might call uh, resistance uh, as well. So multiple aspects of you know introduced power dynamics, but also ways by which the colonized tried to appropriate uh, the discourse of uh, technological modernization, specifically through these uh, discussion of Fengman and Sipung Dams.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so as we, you mentioned, uh, it's not just about bureaucrats, but it's also mm-hmm. about bureaucrats. And as we get to the, um, the final chapter before the epilogue, this is a, a chapter that looks back at some of these bureaucrats. And specifically, this introduces a group of people who you call reform bureaucrats, which is yeah. um, an influential group of wartime policymakers. And you look at ideas of technology within this group. So mm-hmm policymakers are designing Japan's managed economic policies, and the idea of a managed economy becomes really important here for war mobilization at home and in the colonies. And you look specifically at a main figure here, Mori Hideyoto, who formulated mm-hmm. notions of, um, and these are, um, I'm using my little scare quotes here, economic technology and policies designed by Little scare quotes, economic technicians to integrate Japan and the Japanese Empire into an organic mechanism. This is a fascinating way that this story intersects actually with the history of the life sciences in terms of organic metaphors based mm-hmm. on what he calls life organizations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm not going to, because um, of issues of time, I'm not going to ask you to talk um, specifically about lifetions, although if we had more time, I totally would. And I definitely want to put that out there because, again, I think this is a part of the story that um, in a way that might surprise uh, readers or listeners who may not know to look for this in the book, there is a really interesting way where this intersects with the history of organic metaphors um, really su- surprisingly and really um, interestingly. Uh-huh. But one of the points that you note here that's really important, because we haven't talked about fascism yet, yeah. is you note in this chapter that discourses of technology, and again um, you're talking specifically about reform bureaucrats here, lent themselves to the formation of a new kind of fascist power that treated tech as a kind of productive and creative power in people's lives. So could you talk, um, as before we get to the could you talk a little bit about this aspect of the way that the story in this part of the book intersects with and perhaps, um, revises the way we understand the connection between technology and fascism in this context?
0: Um, yeah. So yeah, this this is I guess the chapter where I explicitly talk about the links between uh, technology and uh, fascism. Um, usually, I guess um, technology. I mean, the, the conventional treatments of technology, or the ones I guess the. Predominant, uh, work on technology and fascism sees them as opposites. This is like, if there is the incorporation of technology, it's for irrational ends. That, it, that, it, that fascism somehow perverts, uh, the so-called rational progressive, uh, spirit, uh, of technology. But yeah. I guess what I wanted to show is, um, how it's not necessarily – that's not really the case. I want to show that technology is fundamentally uh, part of, fa- of fascism, right? It's not just something external to it that's appropriated for uh, different ends. Um, the dynamic I really wanted to introduce here is that um, technology um, serves as a way, I mean, in which um, – Bureaucrats tried to, I guess, mobilize down to the, the, the molecular level, if you will, right, to, to, to envision not just the planning of a wartime economy that introduces, um, uh, that mobilizes Japan for war through the introduction of uh, science and technology and heavy industry and all that, but also uh, a notion of technology as a um, uh, as I, like I introduced in the beginning as as involving the creative the the creative mobilization uh, of people right the mobilization in, of people through corporatist vocational organizations for example or or like what you said life uh, what he calls life organizations as well so organizing uh, a notion of technology as involving the fascist um, organization of society, but um again one where people are organized into vocational organizations and are, are in a way, fascism that is invoking, I guess individuality, creativity, uh, people being mobilized, uh, at the microscopic level through uh, at this molecular level, uh, through these vocational organizations, um, people being, you know, in charge of their own, um, you know, work environment, uh, campaigns to increase production, uh, inventions, um, fulfilling themselves through, uh, participating in a high-tech, uh, type of vocation, um, and, I mean, these, this is, I guess, the general dynamic uh, that I want to introduce, how, how fascism is really, uh, also built upon the mobilization of, um, individual, of trying to individuality. It's not only just, a, a kind of imposition of a homogene hom- hom- a dynamic of homogeneity, that these reform bureaucrats, um, in planning a wartime economy paid a lot of attention to, um, you know, not just top down planning, but trying to find a compelling way by which people can fulfill themselves through participating in a high tech economy. For example, through these life organizations, uh, through campaigns, uh, not just in the factory, but through science and technolo- technical education in the villages, uh, in the cities, to address, to try to address uh, people's uh, hopes and desires. And so that's a key dynamic of fascism. Uh, fascism is not just only Irrationality and spiritualism and organicism, but organicism involves, I guess, the invocation or to try to mobilization of people's um, desires, hopes, and dreams. So, try to operate at that level as well. So, that's one thing I tried to uh, introduce, um, and it also had a colonial aspect as well. To try to, uh, you know, how can you know these reform bureaucrats uh, said that if they tried to impose um, Japanese science and technology. Uh, from the top down, it, it would be like an empire uh, that would be built on sand. It would just be easily crumpled down. So they tried to come up with ways to like mobilize um, local knowledge, for example. So the big example here is uh, the example of uh, trying to spread the technology of cotton seed, right? or cotton production, uh, which was a key technology for the wartime economy. Instead of forcing local Chinese farmers to uh, plant uh, cotton seed, They mobilized or they taught local school teachers uh, how to plant plant cotton for this or this effect, distributed cotton seed to the the school teachers who then distributed to the population. So coming up with new ways uh, by which uh, they can try to mobilize local knowledge as a way uh, of uh, power, I guess, as a way of mobilization. And that's another part. Uh, of fascism that I 'm trying to get at, These, the, the, the certain pie- the hard dams of trying to mobilize people's energies and creativity, both in the domestic context and in the colonial context as well.
1: Great. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. Um, I just, I won't, because of um, issues of time, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but I'll just mention for listeners that there's also, after these main chapters, there's a really interesting epilogue here that talks about some of the ways that the notions of technology that are developed during the wartime era, as you spend the book so beautifully um, elaborating and going into continued to store Japan's transformations into a technological superpower. So this really acts as a kind of the other half of this framing of the book at the beginning and the end within the context of this narrative of of the emergence of Japan as a technological superpower that you're both complicating and also um, interestingly taking apart and contributing to.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, Aaron, is there anything else about the book that we didn't cover? There, there's a ton of material in here that we didn't have a chance in an hour to talk about. Is there anything specific we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book?
0: Um, oh, um, I mean, I guess uh, I, maybe this came out, or I mean, One of the goals of the book also is to kind of bridge uh, different fields, right? So bridge intellectual history uh, with the history of science and technology, uh, with the history of uh, empire uh, and all that. Traditionally, it's it's often been the case where, you know, works of intellectual history are just intellectual history or works of history of science and technology. that. So I wanted to kind of do both the, uh, uh, the conceptual work and also uh, the kind of nitty-gritty history of science and technology work was one thing that I, I really sought to do uh, in the book. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm, there probably is, but I, I can't think of uh, any uh, right, right off the top of my head right now. Yeah.
1: Well, so now that the book is out, and congratulations again on a very rich study that contributes to STS, history of science, history of technology, all kinds of other related fields. What's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently inspiring you and that you're working on now? Huh. So are, um, any projects that are currently inspiring you?
0: Um, yes. Um. So... I mean, what, I guess my, my next project takes off from, from the epilogue, um, it's uh, what I also want to do is not only, part of the book, what the book does is not only dispel the notion that J- the wartime Japan is just a place of spiritualist, irrational uh, list emperor worshipping um, fascists, um, but I also wanted to show the continuation of the technological imaginary in the post-war era. One thing I kind of just mentioned in the epilogue is the, that um, a lot of these engineers and bureaucrats who built these large-scale infrastructure projects in the colonies then continue on to the post-war through joining the government or, or building uh, or joining construction companies or building their own development consultancies become key figures in urging Japan to, uh, participate in development projects overseas. Uh, so yeah. the, my next project is going to be on the origins of Japanese overseas development policy. Uh, but looking at also the trans, I guess the trans war linkages between, uh that these engineers uh embody for example they're pursuing projects in places that they've co- that they uh, did studies for be- at before like in indonesia in vietnam um they do projects in laos and in burma uh so looking at um japanese development uh the origins of japanese development and um just looking at the post-colonial aspects of it right how does power operate than in the post-colonial context uh, in Japanese development, which, of course, I mean, we only know the Japanese development. uh, You know, ODA is one of the, Japan is one of the top ODA uh, powers in the world. And so looking at these origins and some of the trans-war linkages is part of my next project. Not just the trans-war origins, though, but how is the just Japanese development, uh, How looking at the origins within a new kind of, Uh, you might say, imperial system, right? And how does Japanese development uh, operate within the U.S. uh, Cold War system? So positioning uh, these engineers and bureaucrats uh, within a new kind of imperial order. How do do we position Japanese development, uh, influential Japanese development projects, within an order that's uh, pretty much dominated by the U.S. Cold War agenda? How, How do we understand Japan's position, which hasn't been, I think, studied enough, um, because of the dominance of the u s and of course western dominated in, uh development institutions um so yeah, i mean that's the uh, when I'm looking at then For the next project, looking at it both at a policy level, but also, again, through this nitty gritty project level of like the Mekong River Development Project or um, projects in South Korea, because Japanese engineers actually returned to South Korea under the Park Chung-hee regime to finish some of the work that they didn't complete um, and looking at that uh, Uh, angle as well.
1: Great. Well, best of luck with those projects and I'll look forward to talking with you about the next book. It sounds great. And Mm -hmm. thanks again for taking the time. It really was a pleasure.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very
0: much for joining us and we'll see you next time.